Welcome to SCD Church's podcast. You can always join us for our live services Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings out in our West Auditorium. You can also tune into our services live online at seacoastchrist.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages. Thanks so much for listening. If you are, uh, if you're visiting with us this weekend, thanks for being here. We're just so glad that you would come and you would hang out with us. Um, we have a ton that is going to be happening in the coming weeks, and so uh, we have been, as Matt said, in the announcements doing this summer of stories. And next week we begin uh, kind of stories of people from outside of our church, and you saw some clips of them, and it is going to be amazing. Some of these stories about how God has transformed uh, people in different uh, places in life. And so make sure you're here, and it's actually a good excuse to bring a friend. If somebody who you know that you would love to get to church, say, hey. You're not going to believe it, but they're going to have a mafia boss or they're going to have, you know, a a double agent or, you know, it's going to be great. So make sure you invite some folks there. Okay, so here's what I want to do. I'm going to list a a bunch of issues that we have encountered over the last couple years. And as I list them, I just want you to monitor and observe how you feel about that issue. Okay, so I'm just going to go through a lot. I just want you to see how you feel. All right, here we go. Uh, COVID lockdowns and masks, the presidential election, riots, abortion, climate change, school shootings, war in Ukraine, inflation, gender ideology, CRT, racism, economic and social injustice and inequity, insurrection, and looming recession. You guys right? You guys feel good? Yeah? Okay, yes, yes. Um, So my guess is, that one of those, if not all of them, they created a sense of anxiety. Like if you were to sit here and think about those issues for too long, you would become anxious and probably depressed. And these are the issues that we have been fed on a pretty consistent basis right in front of our face for uh, the last few years. And it has produced a lot of anxiety in people, a lot of fear. And so as we've been talking about the summer of stories and, and different people's stories at Seacoast, a big part of my story has to do with fear and anxiety, is as I tell my own story, and if I were to sit here and tell you, you know, kind of my faith journey, uh, fear and anxiety would be a big part of it. It's been a part of my family for generations. There seems to be this, this history, this genetic predisposition to being an anxious person, and you could see it from a really early age that I was what uh, my parents thought was just a, a little bit of a warrior. You know, I would worry quite a bit as a kid, and and that worry would progress, and there was different situations and events that, um, that, would, that would make it worse, that would trigger more anxiety. And eventually, I get to this place, and, and it's a long story, but I'll make it short. Eventually, I get to this place in college in which I have a complete and total mental breakdown. Like, I, I am so fearful and anxious and depressed that I can't even get out of bed. I didn't think I was going to be able to go to school any longer. My parents were very worried about me. And it became one of those turning points where it had been building my whole life where I had been an anxious person. And then it finally just, it all hit the fan. And it was time for me to do something about it. And so it began a journey of learning about my own anxiety and how to deal with it and some medications and a diagnosis of OCD. And okay, that kind of makes more sense out of why I feel the way I do. And and since then, it's been this long journey of, of learning how to manage my own anxiety, but also what anxiety is. So here's a couple of things that I've learned about anxiety. Um, when we talk about anxiety and fear, there is a, a natural and good fear that all of us are born with, or at least uh, hopefully we are born with. And that kind of fear is a fear that we experience from the very beginning. And when I mean by the very beginning, I mean it's your first emotion that you've ever felt. 
Like, think about it. When a baby is born and they come out of the womb, what is their first emotion? It's not jealousy or bitterness. It's fear. They start crying. They start screaming. They're going, I was warm. I was comfortable. And now this? And so the first emotion that we feel is anxious. And it's actually not, uh, fear in itself is not necessarily a bad thing. There's a natural and there's a good fear. And so um, good fear or a healthy fear is something that is specific. I know what I am fearful of and it's constructive. And then it pushes me to do something about it. So classic example, I see a lion, which would be just crazy in Cyprus. I see a lion charging down the street. It makes me afraid. And that fear then is constructive because it helps me run and hide. Or little kids, you see, there's a a fire right in front of them. They go, ooh, that's kind of scary. And it prevents them from touching it. Okay, that's a really good and healthy fear. But then there's this unhealthy fear. And it is a, a fear that is generalized, undefined, unproductive, and oftentimes destructive. And so maybe it's I feel anxious, I feel afraid, but I don't even know why. It's just this general anxiety that I have. Or I do know why I'm anxious. This circumstance is making me fearful, but there's nothing I can do about it. Or instead of it helping you um, being constructive, it paralyzes you. I'm so afraid I I can't even act. All of humanity has experienced both kinds of fears, healthy and unhealthy fear. And I would say that the unhealthy fear is, uh, at the end of the day, a result of sin in the world. Is we live in a world that is broken, where we decided we wanted to rebel against God. And at the very beginning of Genesis, where we talk about Adam and Eve and the rebellion against God, what is the first emotion that they feel after they rebel against God? Fear. They go and they hide, and God says, why are you so afraid? Because when that connection between us and God was broken... We, we went from being people who experience incredible amount of peer, uh, peace and love, and then we become people who are fearful because we've lost that relationship. And so it makes sense that we were born fearful and we continue to be afraid, but, but there's something that's taking place specifically here in America that, that psychologists are calling an epidemic of anxiety. So they said in 1980, about 4% of adults had an anxiety disorder. Today, that is 20 to 25% of adults. 40% of Americans say they are more anxious each year than they were the previous year, and this was before COVID. During COVID, these numbers skyrocketed. And each generation is becoming more anxious and more depressed than the previous one. I came across these videos online. I'm not proud that I watched them, but they were entertaining, was public freakouts. Public freakouts is because everybody's got a camera now. And so public freakouts are people who are clearly on the edge, about to lose it, and something just pushes them over the edge and they, they lose it. It's like, look, you have 11 items. This is for 10, all right? And so they just start chucking things across the grocery store. I mean, it's wild. And I, I pray for them. I also giggle a little bit as I'm watching. But, but it's very clear that we have become a people who are on edge who are anxious. And so one of the questions that I have is, well, how did we get like this? Like, what is it about this specific time and place that is creating such anxious and depressed people? Like, there seems to be something in the water culturally in which 
It's making everybody anxious, and we keep drinking more and more of it and producing more and more anxious folks. And so I, I, would, I would trace it back to, and if you've been around for, for very long here, um, one of the things that I've been talking about lately is this idea of hyper-individualism. Hyper-individualism is we are a culture that is, for the first time in human history, decided that we are going to find all of our purpose and worth and value and identity, not external to ourselves, but internal. We have taken this dramatic turn inward. And so if you were to ask the average person, well, what do you think like the point and the purpose of life is? They would answer something like personal happiness. My life is dedicated to finding happiness, however I may define that. So it might be the pursuit of money, uh, some kind of success or, or pleasures. Uh, it can even be uh, political or social issues. People even use religion as a pursuit to happiness. And as we are pursuing this happiness, I get to determine along the way, not only what the goal is, but how I'm going to get there, what I believe is right and wrong or good and bad. I get to define who I am and who I want to be. I get to determine my identity. I get to even determine what is true. Not just true about myself, but true about reality itself. And so it all becomes about us. And I believe we're beginning to see the problems and consequences of this philosophy. Let me point out two. First one is, pursuing happiness will actually make you unhappy. A little counterintuitive, but Ruth Whitman in her book, America the Anxious, she set out to try to figure out why Americans were so anxious. And her conclusion was, it was the pursuit of happiness that was making us miserable. There's other studies. Uh, UC Berkeley came out with one uh, about uh, our pursuit of happiness, and it says, uh, this is their conclusion. Paradoxically, the more people valued and were encouraged to value happiness as a separate life goal, the less happy they were. In the book, um, they use this one example and the guy, uh, I actually remember this guy, I'm um, reading his books. He was the CEO of a company called Zappos, or Zappos, and it's an online shoe clothing company, kind of one of the originals. And his name was uh, Tony Shea. And he believed that his job as the head of that company was he was the happiness evangelist. I, I, wrote, I read his book years ago, it was called Delivering Happiness, and it was about how to create a happy work culture. And so his goal for his life and for his company and for everybody that he encountered was he just wanted people to be happy. So eventually he sells this company, billions of, it's over a billion dollars. He's worth tons and tons of money. And he decides, you know what? I'm going to go from making a company that I believe is going to produce happiness to an entire city. And so he gets him and some of his tech buddies to go and they move to downtown Las Vegas because that's where happiness is. And so he goes to downtown Las Vegas and they start pumping in hundreds of millions of dollars to to revitalize and, and create this community. And the central goal is happiness. They would even set happiness goals for one another, and they would have happiness uh, reviews to see if they were living up to their happiness quotas. And then something strange started to happen. One after another in this group started to commit suicide. And eventually, uh, there, was so, there, there was numerous suicides in a row that people just started to quit and walk away. And so there's a, two authors from the Wall Street Journal, Journal who look back on this, and they wrote a book called Happy at Any Cost. And they concluded that his pursuit of happiness was actually the thing that ended up destroying him. After the book was written initially, and these people had to commit suicide, just fast forward a couple more years, and Tony himself would become a drug addict, 
suffer from mental illness, and die at 46. All in the pursuit of happiness. So it turns out happiness is not a very good goal in life. In fact, if you pursue it, you'll become very unhappy. Second problem is you are the problem, not the solution. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's not going to be a popular message, uh, especially today, but you are the problem, not the solution. So from an early age, especially if you're part of like my generation and, and under, is we have been told that the way to find personal happiness and fulfillment is we need to look deep within ourselves, that that is where our happiness truly lies. And so if we're true to ourselves, not only are we going to be happy, but we deserve this happiness and this peace. And so there's been different movements throughout the years. You think about the started off with the self-help books. You remember those? Those were popular at one point, self-help books. You know who those helped out, by the way? The authors. The authors were helped to a lot of money. Nobody else really, but they, they did well. Uh, then we had the, we had the self-esteem movement which is everybody's a winner, everybody gets a trophy, even though you're clearly a loser, you're a winner, okay? <laughs> I think currently we're in, in, in this movement uh, that I would say is a self-love movement in which I just need to, I need to prioritize me for a while. I need to learn to love myself before I can learn to love somebody else. And then there's this other one that's emerging right now, and it's like the self-improvement where I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I'm going to be determined, and through hard work, I am going to become the person that I want to be. And usually there's, there's a little progress at the beginning, but it soon fails us, and then we're off to the next phase, the next movement that we think is going to bring happiness and fulfillment. And then what we did on top of this, and, and this, was, this, was, this was good, is we decided, okay, you know what would, would really help? If we created this thing called social media, and what we're going to do is we're going to go on there for hours and hours a day and look at all the people pretending to have the life that we want so that we can feel even worse about ourselves. That's not going to make us anxious at all. And so we just keep adding on and becoming more anxious. But what if, what if the, the real issue is that you are the problem, not the solution? That the more you lean into you fixing this, the further away from the goal you're actually going to get. I'm not saying that there isn't anything that you can do, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. But all the folks in recovery, you know this. The first two steps, if you ever want to find health and wholeness, is first you have to admit that you're the problem. Second is you have to submit to God. And we've known this. Whether you're a person of faith or not, we've known for a long time that each one of us are the problem, not the solution, and that we can't fix ourselves, only God can. And so when we begin to believe that, or understand that we're not the solution, but we're the problem, it really changes the way that we start to answer our questions in life. So instead of us deciding and determining everything about our world, we now get to go and discover what it is that God has for us. What it does is it takes all the weight off of our shoulders of, okay, I need to decide, I need to determine, I need to, and it goes, God, what do you have for me? This is all about what you want. I just want to be faithful in that journey. This psychologist Barry Schwartz in a book uh, in 2004 called The Paradox of Choice. And he, uh, he's writing this for companies um, and, and making recommendations of how to make more sales. And what he says is, is when you have too many options, it actually brings anxiety to the, to the shopper. And so what you need to do is you need to limit your options. So if you ever go to the store, you notice there's like three options, Right? There's like the, the lowest price, the middle price, and then the high price. And which one do you always choose? The middle one. 
because you're not bougie. I don't want to show off, okay? But like, look, I'm like middle class, so I'm not going to go with that one. Like, let's go with this one right here. It's a trick, by the way. They know what they're doing. That's, they priced it anyway. Okay. And what he argues is that with too many choices, we become anxious. Now, if this is true of shopping, imagine a society that says you get to choose everything. You get to choose your identity. You get to choose your values, your goals, what makes you valuable and worthy. You get to define reality itself. If shopping with too many options makes us anxious, can you imagine having to construct an entire reality, how that might make you a little bit anxious as well? See, what we've done is we've taken all the responsibilities that that God should have and then we put them on ourselves and it is destroying us. Now, there's good news. Jesus says that there is a a way past this. And if I were to summarize, and Jesus talks about fear and anxiety all the time. The scriptures have a ton to say about it. I can actually summarize it pretty easily. Here's what Jesus says about anxiety. He says, let me make sure I get this right. Fear not. That's it. That's what he says. I know, right? <laughs> That's not helpful. That's not what, fear not. Like, oh, okay, you know what? I was totally, di- I got, I've been fearing and I should fear not, you know? And so that makes sense. Of course, that's not all that he says. He actually backs it up with some reasons why we should fear not. So, uh, again, there's tons of different, like, uh, scenes that I could pick from the scriptures that uh, points this out. But I'll give you one. Jesus was in a boat with some of his disciples. And and if you're a church person, you're probably familiar with this story. It's in Matthew 8. So I'll just jump down to 24. It says this. Uh, Suddenly, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. Okay, so here's the scene. Um, they're going across. It, this storm comes out of nowhere. There's wind. There's waves. People are freaking out. They're thinking, this is it. We're going to die. They're trying to yell and communicate to one another. It is a total disaster. This is the end of the road for us. And what is Jesus doing? Sleeping. Jesus is sleeping. So we think we're going to die. We look over at Jesus, and he's taking a nap. Which, by the way, as a side note... This is how a lot of us still feel about faith sometimes. Like, you know, Carrie Underwood told us, Jesus, take the wheel. And so we're like, okay. And then we're like, Jesus, did you fall asleep at the wheel? Like, what is happening here? Where did you go? You're not doing what we thought you were going to do. The good news is that even the people who did life with him face to face felt like, I'm not sure if Jesus is being attentive right now. I'm not sure that he's really wants the best for me. Because it seems like he's fallen asleep on the job. Verse 25, the disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. He replied, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? Stupid question. Okay, I don't mean that blasphemous, but like, kind of like, why am I so afraid? Well, let's see, water coming over the side. It's windy. We're sinking. Sinking means I'm going to drown. Drown means I'm going to die. That makes me a little bit anxious. Why am I so afraid? And here's, here's what he says. Or here's what it says. Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. I like this. It doesn't say like he freaked out, he jumped up, he was, it says, and then he got up. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, you're right. There's a lot of water in this boat. We should probably do something about that. Hey, wind, waves, not a good time right now. But that gives you a little insight into who Jesus is, is he's never really in a hurry, You've never read in the scriptures, and then Jesus ran at a fast pace to the next city. (laughs) I I haven't read that. 
And Jesus had an incredibly long to-do list that he just wasn't going to be able to finish that day. <laughs> Didn't have that either. It kind of just, he walked around. He talked to people. He loved on people. He got up from a nap and went, oh yeah, that is an issue. Because if you were in control, like God is in control, you probably wouldn't be worried either, right? What is going to happen that I don't already know about? What am I going to face that I'm not already in control of? So he got up and he took care of it. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? This is the question, by the way. If you're, especially if you're not a person of faith, this is like the question I think people should ask before any other questions. Last week, Doyle talked about these people who are deconstructing their faith and walking away or people who won't even entertain the idea of faith because, well, to be honest, I think it's because it doesn't align with what they already believe. Like there are things that they, they believe. Maybe it's political opinions. Maybe it's, uh, you know, sexual morality. And they think, okay, if I'm going to follow Jesus, um, it would mean that it would conflict with what I believe about sexuality. And so I can't believe in Jesus because it may conflict with my, my other views. That doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. Because what you're saying is, because I believe one thing about sexuality or whatever it might be, then Jesus could not have risen from the dead. Huh? That doesn't, that doesn't really make any sense. No, no, no. The first question is, who is Jesus? We'll, we'll answer all the rest of the questions, and we'll, we'll have to wrestle with those. But the first question is not, does Jesus believe like I believe? The first question is, is Jesus who he claimed to be? And once I answer that question, then I can begin to look at the next questions. Even the winds and the waves obey him. If you look throughout the scriptures, there's other miracles that took place in the Old Testament and even the New Testament. And what they would do is they would call on the power of God, and then God would come and he would change that situation. But this is the one person in all of scripture that didn't call on anyone else. He just says, here's what I say. It showed his divine power and authority that he had. Now, if you skip forward a couple chapters, um, Jesus, again, is instructing his disciples. And this time he's instructing them that they are to go out and they are to uh, spread this message about him. And here's what he starts with. This is what I love about it. This is great. He says this. He says, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. All right, team, here we go. Can you imagine like a football coach? All right, guys, you ready to go out there? Yeah, you guys are going to get slaughtered. You know, like, I'm not, no, I don't want to play anymore. He continues on. He says, you're going to be arrested and beaten and betrayed, and you might even be put to death. And then he has the audacity to say, but do not be afraid. Huh? You just told me all the reasons why I should be afraid. No, no, no. There are, there are reasons to be afraid, but you don't have to be afraid. Because even in those moments when there is things to be afraid of, you don't have to be afraid anymore. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He says, yeah, there's lots of things to be afraid of, but that's not it. This life is not what you should be worried about. Because you'll be here today and gone tomorrow. What you should really worry about is what happens after this. What you should really be afraid of is the condition of your soul, not of your wallet. We live in a society that continues to feed us fear and anxiety. We get it from our politicians, from media, from our business leaders. But you know what the one thing they never say that we should be afraid of is? God. I've yet to hear someone say that. 
And yet Jesus says, you got it all backwards. You are afraid of the wrong thing. Don't be afraid of what can happen in this short life that is here today and gone tomorrow. What you should be afraid of is the one who gets to determine where you spend eternity. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care? What he's saying here is he's saying, look, even these things that people consider worthless, God cares about those things. He, he cares about the things that we don't even care about. It's not like he's distant. It's not like he's far off. He knows. He cares. He is in control. And you being created in his image, the pinnacle of his creation, he loves you so much that he would come and die for you. Do you not think that he cares for you as well? Of course he does. He says, even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. See, you know what you do when you love somebody? You count the hairs on their head, right? No, you don't do that? No, we don't do that. What you do, though, is you get to know them. Like marriage is a commitment to spend the rest of your life together just getting to know one another more and more on a deeper level every single day. And God says, I know you so well that I know how many hairs there are on your head. Now, I love my wife, and I want to spend the rest of my life getting to know her, but you know what will not happen? She will not wake up one morning, and I'm counting the hairs on her head going, I just want to know you, babe. I just want to know you. She'll be like, I don't, I don't know. Uh-uh. But he cares that much. He cares even more than we care. And so he says, don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. He says, I care for you so much that I'm willing to die for you. Do you not think that I will continue to watch over and care for you in the future? Now, here's the problem. If you were like me, I would, I would agree that God is in control. I would say that Jesus loves me and that he wants what's best for me. I know that intellectually. I don't feel that often. There is a disconnect between what I know to be true and what I feel to be true. Because if you were to talk to me last week, you would say, Cody, does Jesus love you and care for you? Yes. But why are you so anxious this week? And I'll say, oh, you're right. I am anxious. I am full of fear right now. And so I want to end with just a couple really practical things. Some things that have helped me out through my, my journey of anxiety and fear and depression. The first one is you got to begin to understand how you were made. Understand how you were made. What I mean by this is each of us are, are unique and there are things that trigger and can, can uh, contribute to our anxiety. And so we have to start to understand, kind of like I think of gauges on your car. There's different gauges and they kind of have warning lights and they tell you, hey, you're running a little low here. Hey, you may need to look at this. Your body and your mind will tell you the same thing. And so I've had to begin to know, okay, how, how was I made and what are some of the, the things that may trigger my anxiety? And so I've learned, okay, Cody, um, you're starting, and I've like two, two main ones. One's a mental one. Whenever I start worrying about these really improbable and unlikely things, like if I tell Amy, hey, I'm kind of worried about this, and she looks at me like, I would never even have thought of that before. I go, ooh, okay, I think I'm getting a little bit, a little bit anxious. And the other is physical. When I start to... Uh, eat and not be able to control how much I eat and I become lethargic and I start to get tense in my neck. I go, uh-oh, 
This is like flashing lights here. As Cody, you're heading towards a disaster. There is a crash coming. You are heading towards um, an anxiety attack. And so you've got to learn to listen. You've got to learn to listen to those signs. The other thing is you have to develop anti-anxiety habits. Anxiety is actually a, largely a learned habit that can be unlearned by the right practices. I loved when J.P. Moreland came and he spoke because he, uh, he talked about his own anxiety, this world-class philosopher, and how he wrestled with anxiety and how he's beginning to combat it. And he talked about this four-step process, which is interesting because I, as soon as I heard him say that, I said, I know that process because I've been doing that process for years. This guy at UCLA, Jeffrey Schwartz, and he developed it, and he's a, uh, he's like a neuroscientist. And he talks about neuroplasticity and how we can actually retrain our brains to become less anxious. And, and so I identified that. Like, oh yeah, I've been doing that process too. And, and what I realized is most people just try to white knuckle it. But there's, there are tools that you can put in your tool belt to help combat this. And so it helped me begin to retrain my brain and begin to think differently. There's also other habits, relational habits. Um, I've told you before, I am home by 5.30 every day. I take two days off a week. I do not work extra hours I do, because I know that I have, to, I have to spend my time with my family and on rest. And of course, there's spiritual habits. Is I am a, I'm actually a morning person. Like I get up just naturally at like 5.30 or 6. And when I wake up, I'm just like, and I'm ready, let's go. You know, my wife, not at all. And I understand that. And so I get up and I'm like, okay, here we go, world. <laughs> and she's like, ugh, not now. <laughs> I'm just ready to go. The problem is, is that I, when I hit the ground, I'm ready to run. But that is the only time that I have like in my day where I can really spend some time with the Lord. And so I've got to go, oh, slow down. Okay, Cody, this is probably the most important thing that you do today. So you need to spend 15 minutes at least with God just going through the scriptures, praying, doing some time of worship. And so I've begun doing this habit uh, in, in my prayer time. And here it is. And I've told you this before. I remember the first time doing it, it was terrifying. But I begin my prayers like this. I close my eyes. I take a deep breath and I open my hands, palms up. And I say, God, Amy is yours. Sometimes it's like, God, please, just take the kids, you know? <laughs> so, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> no, but, but what I do is I begin to visualize. And I say, God, these are your kids first. Uh, I love them. I would die for them. They mean so much to me, but they're yours. And so I just want to be faithful. And I want you to remain in control. This church, my job, the future, my fears and worries and my anxieties, they are here for you to take. I don't want them because I screw this up. And it just brings an incredible amount of anxiety and fear when it's up to me. And so every day I have to go, okay, God, it's yours. Sometimes there's action steps that follow that. Okay, I've said it's yours. I'm going to go give it to you now. Here's that relationship. Here's my finances. Here's my, okay, it's yours. And throughout the day, there's moments when I want to pull back and I want to be in control again. And I go, whoa, whoa, hold on. Didn't we determine this morning that you already gave that to God? What's changed since then? Has God become less reliable? Does he love you any less? Is he less trustworthy? No. Okay, then you need to continue to let him take it. So every day I say, okay, God, today it's yours. You know what made the disciples change? It wasn't another lesson. 
It wasn't, it wasn't Jesus commanding them to no longer be afraid. It wasn't even another miracle. What it was was they met Jesus after his crucifixion. They met the res- resurrected Lord. And in that moment, they said, you know what? The thing that we are most afraid of, death itself has been conquered. And so even if there is something to be afraid of, I don't have to be afraid anymore. And so during uh, COVID, a lot of people were experiencing a incredible amount of anxiety and fear. And I think we still are to some degree. And, and my wife, she came to me uh, towards the, the beginning of it. And she said, I've never been an anxious person. I've never been a depressed person. But I am just, I'm drowning over here. I'm just so full of fear and anxiety. And I don't even really know why. I know God's in control, but I'm just so afraid. And so uh, because my wife is much healthier uh, than I am, um, she decided to start praying about it and writing and singing instead of what I do, which is eat my way through it. And as she was doing this, she, uh, she started to sing this song that she wrote. And it was just something that she would sing throughout the day about her anxiety and her depression. And so this weekend, um, I said, hey, would you... Would you be willing to come and share that song? I know it's a very personal song, but would you be willing to come and share that song that, that you wrote as you've been walking through this season of depression and anxiety? And so she, she said that um, she would. And I told her if the sermon doesn't go well, it's really up to her to land this well. You know, she's got to make this happen. And uh, so she's going to do it for us.
People always say, Cody, you know you married up. And I'm like, yeah, I'm tired of hearing that. I know that. I've heard that quite a bit. Um, here's how I'd like to end our service time together, is I would like to pray for you. And, and as I pray for you, uh, if there is something in your life where you're just, uh, you're holding on to it and you are anxious and you are full of fear, uh, I challenge you to try this exercise where you just put your hands out there in your case, okay, God, this is yours. I'm giving it to you today. I'm not gonna take it back. This is me saying you're in control. And so let me pray for you. Lord God, many of us come here full of fear and anxiety. We're not sure what happens in the future. There are so many unknowns. There are so many questions that we might have. And so, um, Lord God, we were never meant to bear the weight of all this fear and anxiety. You came in order to take that away from us. Not only when you came, did you take away all of our sin and guilt, but all of our future is now in your hands. And so, Lord, we come here open-handed, and we place whatever that is, whatever that thing is in our life that is just filling us with fear and anxiety, and we let go of it, and we give it to you. And there will be moments in which we want to take it back, in which we want to be in control, and in those moments, we want to be reminded that you have got this that you are trustworthy, that you love us and you are in control. Lord, I pray that we would walk out of here with a new peace, a peace beyond understanding, that we would feel free, that this burden would be lifted off of our shoulders and that we know that you now are in control. Lord, move it from what many of us believe to be true to something that we now can feel to be true. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In your name we pray, amen. You guys stand with me. Thank you so much for being here this week. And if there's some of you who need some prayer, there's going to be some people down front that would love to pray with you. Also, we're going to have tons of stuff happen over at the kids' building, so hang out for a while. Other than that, have a great week. God bless. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, we also have live services out in our West Auditorium on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings. Or you can always join us live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages to hear these messages in real time.